Hey friends, and welcome to the Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey podcast. I'm your host, Jamie, and I'm so glad you're here. Each week on this show, I invite a friend to join me and we chat about the big things in life, the little things in life, and everything in between. Friends, today on the show, I've got a politician. I I don't even know if we've had a politician on the show before, but today I'm joined by Trené McGee, who is a Connecticut state representative. In fact, she's not just any state representative. She's the youngest black woman at the Capitol right now. And so it was such an honor to hear from her. And I didn't expect this in our conversation, but we talked a lot about politics and the arts and how she feels so many similarities in working in both worlds. She is an actor. She's an acting coach and also represents her state of Connecticut in the Capitol. I first found out about Trené at the Stanford Life event that I was at in Washington, D.C. in January, and I had several people there say, you should talk to Trené. She is a pro-life, whole-life Connecticut representative, and I knew that I wanted to talk to her about what it means for her to be pro-life in her world, in her personal life, and more importantly, as a representative of the state of Connecticut, how is she fighting for the lives of the unborn and the lives of women in every bill that she looks at. So you're going to enjoy this conversation. It was really intriguing to me. It's not very often that I talk to politicians. And so I had fun with it. So here is my conversation with Trinae McGee, or should I say state representative Trinae McGee. Trinae, welcome to the happy hour. Thank you. I'm excited to be here. Well, I'm excited to have a conversation with you because I was attending an event a couple of weeks ago in Washington, D.C., uh, stand for life event pro-life event yeah. and yeah. when I was there um, I think I was chatting with Justin Gibney who's been on the show before and he yeah. was like do you know Trinae I was like who and he's like oh my gosh and then somebody else said that and then somebody else said that and so I'm like well I need to know this girl and so this podcast is like for the listeners and it's also like hey can we get to know each other and be friends so that's what this is so thanks for coming on Thank you. That's exciting to hear, man, especially when I didn't think I would ever be doing anything of what I'm doing now. So I appreciate it. I'm excited okay. to hear. Well, let's start. And t- you introduce yourself and tell everyone what you're doing. My name is Trinae McGee. Um, I am currently a Connecticut state representative. I represent the 116th, which is West Haven, Connecticut. Um, I, was, I became the youngest black woman sworn in. I'm the first black person from my state, my, my district. And, um, I might, for my day job, I'm an acting coach. I'm in the arts. So, uh, that's a little bit of what I'm doing compiled into a, a sentence to the best of my ability, but yeah, got a lot going on. You do have a lot going on. What would you call your like quote unquote real job? Would you, cause you know what I mean? I don't mean that in a weird way. Yeah. I just mean like, no, no, I get what saying. I get what yeah, yeah, no, I get what you're saying. Especially, I mean like for the arts, it's nothing to have a side hustle. Like, you know, it's like nothing to do something on the side. But to be doing politics on the side, you can't just like do politics on the side. Um, so I'd say it just depends on the season. Like from session, like politics a lot of times takes my focus. And then when we're out of session, I'm mostly immersed in the arts. So it kind of like goes back and forth. But right now, politics kind of like is at the forefront of my mind more than anything. Remind us when session takes place. So session is, and this year is a long session, is from January to June, and short session would be from February to May, and that's usually the time that you're called in for committee meetings, for public hearings, for voting, emergency voting, all, all, all sorts of stuff like that. Okay, let's talk politics, not really politics, okay. but let's talk, okay. what drove you <laughs> to want 
to be in government in this form of fashion? Like, you just like you're the youngest black woman ever. Crazy. Yeah, yeah, in the Capitol. Yeah, and I'm the youngest woman up there. There are no women in the twenties. It's crazy. It's crazy. Thank you so much. I'm so honored. I feel so honored to chat with you and hear your story. So I want to hear. Thank you. How did you get there? Where did this come from? Like, tell me all about this. So it's it's funny because you know that quote like we make plans and God laughs like that thing, that thing is really true. Um, I I always liked government. Government was like my favorite subject in school. I was in student government. I was a president of the Black and Latino Student Association. So I always had like a heart for advocacy. But like you know, I started acting when I was three years old, and then I went to college for acting. So I had no idea, like not even the smallest dream or desire to be in politics. And um, I graduated college and just like everyone, you're like, I need a job. So I worked retail and then I worked for a theater. And after having worked for a theater, we entered into this really big fasting phase with my church. And that's when I really, I mean, you grow, I've grown up in church, but I think when I became an adult and I actually was like, oh shoot, this is about relationship. Mm -hmm. Like, this is not about all of these different things that sometimes we're caught up in. This is really about relationship and it's deeply personal. And that's when, um, when, when my mind was transformed that way. So my whole life shifted that way. And I almost signed a contract with a really, really big talent agency. And I just felt really spiritually conflicted. Um, and so I just, I was like, God, I'm not going to do it. I never got so close to something I wanted and it didn't feel good. Wow. Um, but just leave me. And for about two, maybe three weeks, I didn't have like a job. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I just started praying. I was fasting intensely. And I was like, God, let your will be done. Like, I'm, this is a 100% yes. And that shortly after that, I got a call to join my town's um, Democratic Town Committee, which I was like, what is that? And they were like, come aboard. You just come to meetings. But I didn't know that's the foundation of who puts up Congress and local and state. And so I was like, sure. And then after that, they asked me to run for the council. Um, and I wrestled with that from March to July. I said yes in July. I started canvassing in June. I had a pri- in, in August. I had a primary in September, won the primary, won the general election in November. I was sworn in December 2019. And then in October of 2021, in, in August of 2021, I was standing outside my studio. I own a studio. This is where I teach acting. And this woman came up to me and said, you will make a great state rep. And I laughed at her. I was like, I just opened this business. Like, how can I do that? Right. And I mean, this is the flat out truth. My former state rep had embezzled millions of dollars in COVID funds. Wow. And he resigned very swiftly. And that's when I put my name in. And and we ran a four-week campaign and I got elected in December of 2021. It is that crazy. Isn't that a crazy? That is a crazy story. It's crazy. It really is. For real. Okay, I'm going to go back to something that you said that you just said it pretty flippantly, okay. but it is really, really good. You said you had never gotten something so close to something you wanted so badly. Yeah. And then you felt like God said no. Yes. That is like a couple things out of this I want to say is number one, I love that you were willing to listen to God, mm-hmm. even when you were so close to something you always wanted. But number yeah. two, I want to ask you. When you were wrestling through that, not knowing what's on the Mm -hmm. other side, not knowing where you're going to be here in 2023, but what was it that allowed you to say no to something you wanted so badly? I saw the industry take a turn um, where, to me, the arts became super 
um, far left. And when I say that, I don't mean politically. I mean, in, in the ideology, um, it was it was like, I will never forget the last class I had in, in my senior year, my professor said, and this was like different from him, but he said, do not do anything you don't want to do. If you don't want it on the front of a magazine, don't do it. Do not do it. Do not compromise. And I remember him like saying that and being so shocked because I had never heard that before, but I felt like that was for me. Mm-hmm. And um, I just didn't want to compromise my morals and my values or just who I was as a person to be morphed into something that was contrived. Like I was like, that's just not for me. Um, and even, I mean, I feel like when you go through the arts and especially drama and you're kind of beat up a little bit, like you, you walk into these departments and they strip you and they build you up to be who they think you should. And so a lot of us kind of went through that space, which is why I think a lot of them decided not to go into the acting field. Um, but I just knew for me that I really wanted to create something artistic with a message and a, and a value. And I was the 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 sensitivity that I felt was so heightened and I was like I don't know what's on the other side of this but it's it's not good mm. it's not good and so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna continue on with this agency you know moving forward with it and um that was a moment of God just helped me and and at, and at that time God was stripping people from me I was in a really long-term relationship comp- ended I mean it ended abruptly um some of my friendships I love them still, but that the season for that ended, and I really went through that that uh, purging phase and that detoxifying phase of of things just being removed from me, and it was extremely painful. Mm-hmm. Um, but but now looking back, I I needed to go through that, um, especially for the things that I was praying for. <laughs> like you know, I would pray the prayer of Jabez, like you know, enlarge my territory, and that comes with pain. <laughs> I just love hearing stories like this because I'm like, look at the Holy Spirit doing exactly what he says he's going to do. He's going to guide That's us right. and protect us yeah. and show us where to go. Yeah. I also can't help but see and draw a correlation between you having to learn that lesson compared to the arts and then jumping into politics. Because yes. I've never been in politics, Trine, but I see what I see. And it feels yeah. like there might be a lot of opportunities for you to maybe get soft on your values or your morals and politics okay so you're you're young in this game you're you're young here how ha- did that experience prepare you for what you're doing now oh that's a good question so i i think one the toughening mm-hmm. the toughening up um the the um kind of sh- the having to go through things having to be persecuted a little bit that really prepared me for the space that i'm in and I think I, I always felt peculiar. I always felt like an anomaly, like always, like my whole life. And so now that I'm in this space, even when I'm the outcast, I'm so used to it. I'm, it doesn't bother me. Mm. So it's I, I'm like, I've been weird my whole life. Like <laughs> I've been different my whole life, you know. And so I think all of those things definitely prepared me for politics, but also in the arts, and especially in liberal arts, because I went to a college of the liberal arts, which I didn't understand until like now I'm in politics. Everyone is trained and encouraged to be activists. Everyone like arts and the arts and politics kind of run adjacent and the arts influences politics and politics influences the arts. And everyone is like pro black lives matter, pro this, pro that. Uh, but the reality, and I actually had this conversation with a recent graduate the reality is, is when you leave college and you're immersed in the real world, you realize that a lot of what you've 
learned was just strong indoctrination. And no, it's not that black lives don't matter, because, of course, I value black lives. But I think at the core of like reading a bill and seeing how it's wrong and then watching the entertainment industry take it and promote it as being right. Mm. Um, it, it at first was tough for me, but I, I, I rejoice because I'm like, God, you put me here for a reason. You, you really have put me here for a reason. And I feel like I'm taking things from politics and I'm talking to my artistic friends and I'm vice versa. Mm -hmm. Because what the arts has is a sensitivity to humanism, like just to people. Mm -hmm. A sensitivity to emotions and stories. Um, I had a professor who used to tell us, you can't call characters crazy. Every character has an issue. Every person has a life issue. And that's something I can take to politics. And then with politics, there's a sense of fact and stats that is really required to do the work that I think is really important for the arts. Mm. I, I, so I, think sort of you're, I think you have a little lane here of, of this arts and politics lane because I would have never, ever, ever put that either one of those informed each other. And so I, I really yeah. like what you're saying. Now, you said you've always been an outcast your whole life. How do you feel like an outcast um, in politics? <laughs> so I am a pro-life Democrat. Um, and I laugh because I'm like, you know, I mean, there's so many. I'm the youngest woman up there. I'm young, black and a woman. I'm pro-life. I'm artistic. I'm you know, a woman of faith, I, you know, so there's so many things, but it definitely, definitely uh, was when I became vocal about being pro-life mm. and solidly pro-life. And I just, I knew even before I got elected to the house, God in November of 2018 told me you're going to publicly boast about being pro-life. Like mm. that's going to be your thing. And I remember mm -mm, there's no way. But after I had done research and it just convicted me and I just I, I wailed, I, I cried for the souls of our our nation um, and the deception. I knew that it was a stance that I had to take. And it was very difficult at first because growing up in the black community, like people are pro-life, even if they don't call it pro-life or like pro-choice. It's just like have an abortion or not. Don't. The grandma will raise mm -hmm. your child, you know, mm -hmm. or women have had abortions out of lack and not because they wanted to, but they felt like parenting was really a privilege. And so women around me, you know, even believe, even if they are pro-choice, they're not radically pro-choice. And so I just sort of feel like I'm taking the vocal stance of a lot of people in my community. I think that kind of freaked out some of the media um, and even some, you know, at the Capitol because they're, they feel, I think that I'm giving voice to, sort of that moderate person or that person who doesn't choose a side, but they're like, this is what I believe, you know? Mm. And so that's oftentimes why I felt, uh, why I feel like an outcast. And, and there are times where I have to um, speak morals to power. We had a bill come up recently. It was It's human compost, green burial, human compost. And a very passionate Jewish man came before us and he broke down the symbolism of the Holocaust to us human doing legislating human compost and people you know people around i don't want to say they laughed but i think that some of them just did not take what he was saying serious and i i felt like i had to come to his defense mm. and i said no he's right and a lot of people who are not even jewish they might even be secular feel this way and so i i think i think that there is a space for the outcast in government and that's really what people want Mm -hmm. now more than ever is a person who's just really different you know i think that is what people want for sure and you know we i asked you how you feel an outcast and i knew that the pro-life democrat was good thing was going to come up 
and I'm grateful for it. Um, I full disclosure, probably, unfortunately, most of my listeners are white women, thirty to forty five, whatever they fall into that blank. Um, Yeah. I'm so proud of the Happy Hour listeners. I've been doing this show for nine years, and we have had hard conversations. That's we've had awesome. we've had conversations that have pushed people and hard to understand. And one of the things that I think has been a conversation that has been needed to happen on here is that pro life doesn't equal Republican. Right. So I want you to talk to myself and listeners a little bit, even about this whole life narrative, which I think is another conversation that needs to be had. That's something I talked a lot about coming back from Stand for Life, and I've talked about before, is this expanding our view from just pre-life. We we are for the pre-born, right? Like we want the pre-born to to not be aborted. We want to save pre-born lives. But then where does that go after that for like the mom after she has the kid, the baby, all the things? And so- one of the things that's happened in this argument, which is difficult to watch, and I'd love your opinion on it, is we sometimes see Republicans preborn, Democrats postborn. Yeah. How do yes. you how do you come to the table as a follower of Jesus first and yes. say whole life is what we're looking at? Because talk to me about that. Yeah. So one, I I really appreciate this opportunity and platform because. I found myself befriending and being allies with and having mentors and unlikely pairs. And God really had to open up my mind and my heart to receive that, which is why one of the things I oftentimes pray, like God, take the prejudices away. Mm-hmm. When I got to the Capitol, there were people who I never would have thought would have went to bat for me. Like an older white Catholic woman who's a Democrat, mm-hmm. you know, who's like, there's no way she should be treated like that. And so I'm grateful for this opportunity and it's really going to take all of us. Um, But I, I tell people often with my generation, with Gen Z, even there's just no way, which with our generation, there's just no way that we can talk about abortion without talking about the ways and the measures by which we will make sure we sustain life. Mm. We have to talk about the womb to the tomb. Because so much of what young people are experiencing, like I read a statistic that 3 million teenagers, babies and teens between the ages of like 3 and 19 are exposed to guns um, just in their homes. And so we have to really address this thing from a whole life perspective if we want to win people. And ultimately, like that is what Jesus did as well. Um, and so what I felt uh, employed to do was to share the history of the abortion industry and even the history of, you know, the foundation by which this came and influenced our society and kind of indoctrinated our children. And that came with much prayer. That came with much fasting. Um, A lot of people, I think, expect me to get up and quote scriptures. And absolutely, if the Holy Spirit leads me to, I will. Uh, but what I felt imposed to do was to share the history, which what which is the truth, mm-hmm. and that shall make us free. And to be at the table with Democrats and Republicans and to say, ultimately, pro-life and life was a branch of the civil rights movement, but the civil rights movement was just not aggressive enough for like a Steinem in the, in the women's movement, the feminist mm-hmm. movement. Mm-hmm. And so they practically hijacked it and influenced people like Jesse Jackson, who was one of the most profound pro-life black men in American history. 
uh, to change his stance and that he would not gain success if he ran as pro-life. And that happens to this day. Black mm -hmm. politicians to this day are encouraged to switch their stances. And so I oftentimes tell my, my allies on this side is if you're really an ally, because my theory is that <laughs> the far right and the far left are really the same. They're just on opposite sides. They're both like wealthy. They both grew up wealthy. They both like progressives are no different than far right conservatives. They also think they know what's best for black people. They also they're just on the other side, but they are. It's the same. <laughs> they're just different. They're, matter of fact, this side is like the right side is like the fathers and the grandfathers. And then the left side is like the oppressed daughters and nieces, you know, that are kind of fighting each other. But I oftentimes tell them at the table is in order for us to engage in these discussions, we have to create policies that will empower women to choose life mm -hmm. that will empower them to say, OK, you know what? I can take care of this baby. I had three moms call me in the same month from my district. All of them chose life before they talked to me. One, one woman was in a relationship with a black man, got kicked out of her house. One young woman was with her, her boyfriend, and they just needed someone to live. And another young woman, a, a really thorough, you know, made sense situation, was in college and just did not know how she can afford to pay for college um, and also take care of a baby. Mm -hmm. And so the commonality with all of them is that they needed resources and support and housing, but they wanted to keep their babies. And so what we have to do is not be selfish on the right side with financial resources that we know have benefited us because this country was really built, obviously, on religious principles. But but another foundation is business. The love of money is the root of all evil. And so if you have a business, you are highly respected. And then the far left side is feels almost as if women have been uh, pushed out of the conversation and that we care more about life. And so I tell them both, it's her life first, the life she's carrying second. And if we do all that we need to create bipartisan policy, like the one we just passed free lunch, uh, we passed a bill last year, the bus was free. I had constituents like call me and say, I saved $500 this month because the bus is free. I saved this much mm. because me and my kids ride the bus for free. So these are all, that's a whole life policy uh, that creates an environment that people feel safe in. Statistics tell us that when people are safe, they're fruitful and they multiply. And I think those are the ways in which we have to, we have to really work together. Uh, but it's not an attack on the future. It's really attacking the systematic things in place now um, that we have legislated and allowed to be for so long that both the right and the left are benefiting from. Mm. I, I need to ask you another question, but I also need to first acknowledge it was so kind of you to include me in your Gen Z uh, comment because, girl, I am I am so past Gen Z. No, you're right? a millennial, right? Yeah, probably. Yes. Yeah, you're so a millennial. You I'm like a young millennial. I'm like, I think I'm like on the cusp. Okay, okay. Well, anyhow, <laughs> um, you know, when, when I was at Stand for Life, uh, which... I don't know when they're airing all those conversations, but whenever they do, I, hope I, will, so. I know I will let everyone know about them. But the co the conversation they asked me to have was I did a talk mm -hmm. on why adoption, because I, I have four kids, three of them through adoption, but they wanted me to talk on why wow. adoption is not the solution to abortion. And you'll hear that rhetoric a lot like, oh, we need to mm -hmm. just like, if you'll just like, we'll, we'll adopt your baby. Like don't abort, we'll adopt your baby. And while I think the, the sentiment and the the idea of that is coming from a great place, right? Like, oh, mm -hmm. carry your baby to term, 
we'll find someone to adopt a baby. But the mm-hmm. problem with that is goes along with what you're talking about here. The problem with it is that doesn't solve any of the mom's pro- mom's issues, which were leading her mm-hmm. to consider an abortion. Right. And so what will happen the next time she finds herself in the situation? Well, we haven't solved anything for her. And so I think that is a conversation that is sometimes tricky and hard for people. And you, you, you displayed it so beautifully, but they only can think about like, if we can just get this baby born, everything's okay. Yeah. When really, like you said, there is so much that if we can help this mom, a make a plan that works for her, whether that includes yeah. adoption or parenting, either one. But it has to yes. solve some of the circumstances that found herself there. And so, right, I'm happy with the work that you're doing. What do you think are some of the ways that the people that are listening to this podcast who are not a government official, they are women, mostly women, some men, but they're just living their lives, loving Jesus, and they care about. Um, pro-life they are pro-life individuals i would say the majority of the people listening are pro-life what are some encouragement that you can give them for kind of bridging that gap that you talked about is like we have to care for the pre-born and the mom like what is some encouragement you can give them or even ways that they can do that in their own communities yeah Uh, so one is relationships relationships are extremely important um i i think sometimes we expect things from people we don't have relationships with and so uh, whether it's pregnancy centers or community centers or after school programs, I know after school programs, a lot of them were canceled because of funding. But imagine being a volunteer um, and just having parents sign signing slips so that latchkey kids don't have to walk home or take the bus or be home by themselves. So community relationships, those things have to be fostered. We don't have community neighborhoods as much as we used to. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that 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 kind of mindset of I am looking out for your child. I saw a post that said, just know that if your child's around me, they're safe. And so that's the type of environment that we, we truly need because le- what legislation is doing is, is driving e- an even greater wedge between parents and their children. And so we have to surround parents and just people in general to be empowered enough to speak up on behalf of their children, to build relationships with their children and just to build relationships within the community. Uh, the second thing that I think is important is going to your local meetings, whether it's the Board of Education or it's the council. You don't even have to speak, but just sitting and listening to the things that are being created and mapped out in your community and and offering prayer. Um, I know my local, the city hall, they never reject prayer. So calling your mayor up and saying, you know, listen, I don't know if you're in, interested in this, but I would love to uh, pray. I would love to have a one month prayer or whatever prayer to just pray for the city and pray for your safety. Um, praying with schools, praying with police departments, praying with fire departments, because all of those things really do shift our atmospheres and our environments. And then they also foster uh, relationships. And I think it's also important for us to um, anywhere you redirect our financial loyalty, wherever we are financially loyal, whatever we're investing in, whatever we're donating to, to, to solidly do research on how they benefit people. I think it's something like 67% of millennials will pay five or $10 more for something if they know that the proceeds go to something that they care about. And so you are dealing with generations. The Gen Z generation says that 60% of them or yeah, 50% or more will work a job for themselves doing something they're passionate about rather than for anyone else. Mm-hmm. And so you're dealing with generations who are very creative and very open. And the reason why I give these stats is because 
right now, statistically, that age range uh, between like 18 and I believe it was 35 were amongst those seeking abortions and 18 and 25 were the highest. And so they are the ones that need more mentorships, relationships, community, prayer, all sorts of things like that. And sometimes your money, sometimes uh, donations to places, sometimes um, investing in a, a young person's future, investing in something that you know will really grow and expand those around you. That's so helpful. It really is. I want to talk for just a second about um, this idea of a whole life instead of just yeah. the, the the term pro-life versus yeah. whole life. Do you find the term yeah. pro-life to be a little bit confusing these days? A little. I'd say this is I sometimes have to tell people to be pro-life does mean you're against abortion. Because, uh, you, you know, you might hear someone say, well, you're pro-life, right? So you should care for all these things. And I'm like, well, we, we got to we got to. We got to make it make sense because pro-choice meant also means that you can mandate stuff, you know, so we have to make it make sense in terms of politics. But I've noticed with this new wave of um, identities and um, uh, um, phrases, it's no longer pro-life. It's pro it's anti-abortion. Mm. And I think that's because the, the you know, like Planned Parenthood and all these different uh, organizations and industries, they kind of took the pro-abortion thing and try to run with it. And people were like, wait a minute, that's not actually what we feel. Um, but to be anti-abortion to me does dismiss the fact that people are putting in their time, efforts, energy, money, and everything to actually meet the needs of women, mm. um, outside of birth. Mm. Like I know the pregnancy center here offers dad classes. Yeah. They're doing a lot of, they're, they're clothing babies up to, I think three years old. Mm -hmm. Um, but I think with the term whole life, it's more embraced because we're actually seen for what we're actually doing. Right. Um, and that is caring for the mother, the baby, the all of the her circumstances and all of her situations. That is making sure that whatever she subsidizing she needs or whatever housing she needs or food she needs, she's getting it. Mm -hmm. And that those are the things that I'm seeing within my district. Those are the things that I'm seeing within my community. Uh, there are pregnancy centers. Uh, there's a black owned pregnancy center in New York. And there's a there's this fashion. There's this um, passion around opening up centers like that community centers that are providing resources for people all the way up to 18. And so that is that whole life landscape. And majority of those who are pro-life to me are advocating more for resources mm -hmm. and not not necessarily politicians. But I say just your everyday person. They're advocating more for resources for women than the other side, because I think that their focus really solidly is right now abortion, mm -hmm. especially with Roe versus Wade being overturned. That's what I was going to say. And so that's that's kind of where we have to shift. We have to shift into that that whole life space. It's it's holistic. It's unifying. It really is clothed in love. It really does meet more needs than just birth. Mm -hmm. It's postpartum. It's post-abortive resources. It's mental health resources. We passed um, a historical legislation. It's an act concerning children's mental health, HB 5001, last session. And literally, it is one of the most amazing bills. It was completely bipartisan. It's offering mental health support for children, not only in schools, but even in like sports. Mm. You know, So we have all of these different things that we're setting up whole life. These are whole mm -hmm. life policies. Um, and then there are times where I have to get a bit stern in my pro-life stance, um, especially with the legislation coming forward, like abortion pills on college campuses and like 
contraception and vending machines and like abortion up to birth and infanticide and all that crazy stuff. That's when I have to get radically pro-life to kind of push back on the agendas that I know are being implemented um, so that we don't have a future. That looks that that looks like that way with abortion pills and vending machines and at the yes, local CVS. Yes, yeah, and yeah. Crazy. It's crazy. You know, I was having a conversation with my friend Bree, who was at that um, Stand for Life event with me. And one thing that she brought up and we had a conversation about is how um, historically this is good. I'm going to be a big generalization, but I think you can get my point. Historically, mm -hmm. the North American evangelical church has been very pro-life in the sense of anti-abortion. Mm -hmm. That's it's been mm -hmm. they've been in the pre-born space, pre-born, pre-born, pre-born. And then Roe versus Wade gets overturned. And so now mm -hmm. it's almost like they're having to expand. They're having to to see this more in a holistic view. And so mm -hmm. I guess my question for you is, do you see the church, not even just from politics, but do you see the church stepping up into having a more holistic view than they have in the past? Most definitely. Um, this kind of reminds me of this. I watched a guy in an interview. He said, I work for a Fortune 500 company. My goal is to grow the business. To grow the business, I, he said. I took my master plan and I brought it to my pastor and I said, "Let me create a social media platform for us to grow this ministry." And the pastor rejected it. And soon after COVID happened, this pastor went right back to the young person and said, um, "We actually need social yeah. media about that and social I think media." That's, yeah, that's exactly. And I think that's what's happening with the church and with the body of Christ. In, in the black church, and I think just as like every church where you would have like a young woman who was pregnant, especially back in the day, I mean, way back in the day where they would like stand you up, you mm -hmm. were pregnant, you had to sit out and like you could be pregnant by the musician who's still over there on the drums, right? Playing, um, playing away but, on the drums like, while, you, playing, while you repent. <laughs> playing away, exactly. While you're repenting, while you're shamed, while you uh -huh. feel outcasted, while you feel, um, but I do feel like the environments that I've grown up in spiritually and as a, as a believer, my my church community uh, has always taken care of young women and their babies has always cared for their babies. It, it was not an abnormal thing to see an older woman in the church with a baby who was like one of the young woman's babies who was like sleeping after work and needed a babysitter. So I'm very used to that. We, we call them like church babies. Mm -hmm. Um, a baby would be like on the bosom of an older woman, you know, who we were like, who baby is that? You know, so, so I am, I am very used to that, but I think the church had a few warnings with this, um, with preparing for this. But what I do see now is churches are becoming distribution centers of diapers, of programs, of finances. There's a few churches in the state of Connecticut that are literally going through legal legal paperwork to become distribution centers of, sh of, um, of sheltering women, um, babies. We have a church, we have a home on our church's property that we want to turn into a maternal home. So there are a lot of um, things like that I, I, that I see happening across the country and especially in the Northeast region. I do think at the same time, we have to also deal with the traumas that we have experienced or, per or perpetuated in the church. Uh, when it comes to women, single women, women who have children out of wedlock and men as well, um, to really n not only change what it is we see, um, but but be what this world and the society needs in this time. And that is the kingdom. That's churches to rise up 
to adopt families. There was this program called the Esther program. I don't know if it still exists, but churches would adopt whole families. The mom, mm -hmm. the dad, the children, um, make sure they got to school on time and that the mom and dad had clothing. And so that's where I see the church shifting. And, and I think I'm, I'm grateful for God's grace um, because this is these are things that we, we should have started a long time ago. Yeah, I, I, I do want to say, I, I would imagine if you've grown up with a black church, you guys have been ahead of more conservative white evangelical churches. I think so. I, I, <laughs> when it comes it's a to big this, yes. Yeah. Yes, when it comes to this, yeah. a big yes. yes. And so yeah. I, I'm grateful for that. And I, I know that's your experience. And I'm thinking that there are so many churches and we'll just, we're not talking about the big C church of Christ. We're talking about an actual yeah. church on the corner of third and second yeah. that are, are having to expand their worldview yeah, now absolutely. more than they ever have. Yeah. And absolutely. I'm grateful for it. I'm really grateful for Me it. Me too. I think Me it's too. pushing people. It's pushing them out of their boundaries. It's making it right. where it's a little bit uncomfortable a little bit where it's been really comfortable yeah. for many years probably. And so yeah. Obviously, I don't want any abortion at all and, and all the things. Yeah. But And I think that this is pushing people to kind of have to think a little bit more um, yeah. deeper about issues that they might not have had to think about. So, yes, mm. absolutely. Uh, Trine, what is the most exciting thing coming up in your world in the next couple of months? Ooh, so I, there are a few opportunities that I have uh, where I'm going to meet some people and talk with them and engage in policy um, around life. Those are my favorite opportunities because I get to do something I'm really passionate about. Um, complete this session. I have a theater. I propose the theater tax credit bill that I'm really hoping passes. I have a public hearing. That's a really great thing. That means that onto the next level and um, we'll vote on it on the floor. So I'm excited about that. And then we, a few of us kingdom creators, we're going to get together and just start creating. I, I need that balance. So I'm excited for that. When you say kingdom creatives, are you just using that term or does that term actually mean something? So I, I kind of, I don't think I came, I came up with it to myself, but people have probably used that term before. Um, kingdom creatives are like people who are gifted in the arts um, and who are called in the arts, who are pursuing careers in the arts, who really just want to do it with God as the center and the focus. I love We that. meet up and we kind of, yeah, we kind of hang out and yeah. I love that because you mentioned earlier at the beginning, it can be a very lonely place um, in the arts as a follow. Absolutely. You know, I, I, I find it just like not ironic at all that you have been in two spaces where I would feel like it could be very lonely sometimes to be a faithful yeah. follower of Jesus. It is, yeah, it's, it's very difficult sometimes. I will say that ooh, God has completely uh, convicted and purged some of my colleagues. When I stood against an abortion bill on the floor last year, um, like 17 Democrats voted no with me. And that was a big deal. That had never, they're That's like that. They're like, deal. Democrats have never voted against an abortion bill. And, and I didn't know. I just spoke from my heart. I spoke from my research on the floor and it's flip votes. And so I have colleagues now that are like, yo, I'm convicted or I'm learning more. I took lobbyists at face value. I did not know that. So there is a lot of that. So I will say, I think a lot of, my colleagues are being drawn to Christ or back to Christ. Yeah, because I I don't know much about what you said. And if we had two more hours, I would make you teach me all of this about how you said that the pro-life was hijacked in the 60s. Um, oh, yeah, for sure. And Democrats were a lot of them were having to switch their view or at least publicly switch yeah. it in order to be a Democrat. Yeah. And I find that so intriguing. And then what you just said that yeah. you had 17 colleagues who switched their vote. I mean, that's that's yeah. like Jesus on the move. 
Yeah, it is. And I see him as a capital just taking back territory. And it's honestly monumental. It is an, it's incredible to be a witness to. I my my uncle always says like you're one of the last prophets to the nation and I kind of I get tickled I laugh at it but I think about the things that I say to my colleagues or things I can't remember because the Holy Spirit gave it to me and I'm like oh my gosh like these were warnings you know we've we've been through a lot as an assembly we lost one of our colleagues in the beginning right after we left the inaugural ball he had passed away in a car crash so we've been through a lot and I think sometimes grief. It's, it's, it forces you into a humble position. Mm-hmm. It forces you into a position of really evaluating your life and your, your heart. And so, um, yeah, there's, 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 there are a lot of, I mean, even in the seventies, like black Democrats were conservative. They were not, you're like black people are not like extremely socially liberal mm-hmm. or progressive. They're not. Um, and so, a lot of a lot of us just in our DNA and our core, there's faith. Mm. Um, you know, slaves really did rely and lean in on their faith. And I mean, just moving through through the decades, Dr. King's brother, um, who was Alveda King's father, um, was very pro-life. That was like his thing. And Jesse Jackson, there's Dr. I believe her name was Dolores Greer. I mean, a lot of people were very, very pro-life and they spoke against it because they knew the genocidal um attitude behind it but like i said the feminist movement really did come come in and you know i i I have issues with the feminist movement to this very day it's so problematic um and i i don't i'm like i don't identify with this way of feminism it Mm -hmm. just you know makes sense and but at the same time yes i am a powerful woman and so a lot of young women call themselves womanist you know they've kind of flipped that term a little bit um, but it really has, it really, really, and I mean, even in the pro-choice movement in and of itself, like there's a whole individual part of it called black pe- reproductive justice or whatever, um, that's separated from it because of the racism around it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, and so I think that that's just really at the core and, and a lot of what sh- right now, um, women, white women are making black men denounce um, and call the civil rights movement patriarchal. So a lot of black men are exiting really high positions at universities because mm. of this. Mm. And so that's why I say they're 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 the same. You know, they're one and the same. And and um, if we were able to really freely be ourselves, it would be a little bit more conservative. And I think I think society would. No, society and media knows where 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 black people are. Trené, I am really, really grateful to have met you and spent this time together. Thank you, you for your work. I'm just so of proud of all you're doing. I'm like, look Thank at me you. getting to chat to the youngest black woman um, <laughs> in this representative. So thank you so much. You um, so I would much. love to hear, what are you reading these days? Jamie wants to know, Jamie wants to know, we wanna know what you're reading. I've been reading a lot of plays, um, a lot of August Wilson. Um, there's a play by, it's kind of like where I've been immersing myself. There's a play by August Wilson. It's called Jitney. It's one of my favorite plays. Um, and I not too long ago saw the piano lesson on Broadway with Samuel Jackson. So I, I immersed myself into his century cycle. So that's what I've been reading. I love it so much. Well, Trené, thanks for coming on and um, keep doing all the good me. work. For sure. Thank you so much. The Happy Hour with Jamie Ivey is a production of Ivy Media Podcasts. Executive produced by Jamie Ivey, produced by Lindsay Sweeney, edited by Angie Elkins, show notes by Nikki Ogden, art by Jen Jet Barrett, 
original music by Matt Graham, and I'm your host, Jamie. Have a happy hour with a friend.